Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. You can find out more and give them a call. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have a terrific show for you today, including special guest Bob Levy. He's the chairman of the Cato Institute. We'll continue our conversation about immigration. Also, Andrew Joppa is a professor and author of Josepha Savaz. Andy will be joining us as well. It is June the 1st and on this day in 1997, Hong Kong reverted back to Chinese rule in a ceremony attended by British Prime Minister Tony Blair, Prince of Charles of, uh, Charles of Wales, Chinese President, and U.S. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. A few thousand Hong Kongers protested the turnover, which was otherwise celebratory and peaceful. In 1839, British invaded China to crush opposition to its interference in the country's economic, social, and political affairs. One of Britain's first acts of the war was to occupy Hong Kong, a sparsely inhabited island off the coast of southeast China. In 1841, China ceded the island to the British with the signing of the Convention of Chunpi, and in 1842, the uh, Treaty of Nanking was signed, formally ending the First Opium War. Britain's new colony flourished as its east-west trading center and as a commercial gateway and distribution center for southern China. In 1898, Britain was granted an additional 99 years of rule over Hong Kong under the Second Convention of Peking. In September 1984, after years of negotiations, the British and the Chinese signed a formal agreement approving the 1997 turnover of the island in exchange for Chinese pledge to preserve Hong Kong's capitalist system. On July 1, 1997, Hong Kong was peaceably handed over to China in a ceremony attended by numerous Chinese, British, and international dignitaries. The chief executive under the new Hong Kong government formulated a policy based on the concept of one country, two systems, thus preserving Hong Kong's role as a principal capitalist center in Asia. In 2019, massive pro-democracy protests broke out in Hong Kong over what many perceived as growing oppression from mainland China. So... Certainly keeping uh, economic freedoms uh, going, that was important, but how about personal freedom as well? Not so much in China right now, and of course we know the problems that we have uh, as a result. Governor Ron DeSantis encouraged fathers to participate in their families' lives in an interview with First Class Fatherhood discussing the fatherhood crisis in the United States. He said, if you had every kid in America having a loving father at home, we would have far, far fewer problems than we would have to deal with in society, he said. The governor urged fathers to be present in their kids' lives. He shared the struggle he faced spending time with his family while serving as a member of Congress when his daughter was born in Florida. The governor signed legislation to tackle the fatherlessness crisis in Florida. Last month, he signed legislation to support fathers and children by connecting men with career services and boys with mentorship. DeSantis said in April, the kids without a father being more likely to drop out of school and get in trouble with the law. And that's statistically provable. 
I do think there are a lot of problems, but if you could just snap your finger and do one thing, and you did it with this where the fathers were at home, you would not even need to worry about a lot of these other problems, DeSantis said. I think he's so right about that. So many problems all start in the family and can be corrected and uh, cut off in the family as well. We're going to talk more about that later in our interview with Andrew Joppa. On Tuesday, a federal judge found former Hillary Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman not guilty of lying to the FBI. According to the New York Post, the verdict came halfway through the second day of deliberations following a two-week trial. Sussman had been charged with one count of lying to the FBI in relations to his actions in 2016. Prosecutors attempted to prove that Sussman had deliberately lied to the FBI general counsel James Baker by stating that he had not been bringing forth the Russia collusion allegations on behalf of the Clinton campaign and an Internet executive when the pair met in 2016. When the two met at FBI headquarters, Sussman gave Baker two thumb drives as well as a number of white papers that alleged a secret communications channel between the Trump Organization and Alpha Bank, which had ties to the Russian Kremlin. Uh, in an opening statement, Deborah Bitten Shaw said that the plan was to, for Internet searchers, researchers to find negative information regarding Trump and China, leak the findings to the press, and then for Sussman to lie to the FBI to spark an investigation into the since-discredited information, all in a bid to create an October surprise on behalf of the Clinton campaign, that according to the New York Post. We are here because the FBI is our institution that shouldn't be used as a political tool for anyone, not Republicans, not Democrats, not anyone, Shaw said. Well, that's the case. Happy she said it, but quite frankly, uh, it's been so politicized. Since uh, counsel, General Counsel John Durham indicted Sussman last year, stating the Clinton campaign lawyer had lied, uh, Durham's team have called 16 witnesses to the stand over the duration of the trial, including Baker, who said that he was 100% confident that Sussman told him he was not appearing before me on behalf of any particular client. Now repeat that. He said he's not appearing in, in front of me in, in uh, behalf of any particular client. Prosecutors also introduced into the evidence a text message that Sussman sent to Baker the night prior to September the 19th, 2016 meeting, saying he was only wanted to help the FBI. Well, this all, of course, turned out to be a lie, but it didn't matter because they found him not guilty. In response to the verdict, Twitter users surmised that the D.C. jury had been rigged, and there were three Clinton donors that were on the jury, but it just didn't matter. The case was made against a backdrop of so many prior falsehoods and a growing belief in America that lying has become a norm in politics in Washington. The former woman of the jury that acquitted Sussman said as much as in a brief statement to the news media Tuesday afternoon suggesting it wasn't worth the jurors' time to convict someone for lying to the FBI. That's right, she really said that. I don't think it should be have been prosecuted, the jury foreman uh, said. According to an account in the Washington Times, there are bigger things than affect the nation than a possible lie to the FBI. Well, <clears throat> think about what happened to... Uh, to uh, Flynn, and uh, he was caught for a lie and uh, virtually ruined his life. So the FBI has been politicized. This is all such a shame. The charge was lying to the FBI. It is a criminal offense. And uh, the jury said, well, yeah, you lied, but it's not important. Can you believe that? Where has our society come to? It's just unbelievable. 
Nevertheless, I think enough information came out of this trial that I think it's going to lead to more indictments and perhaps uh, having bigger fish to fry uh, legally and judicially uh, because of this, uh, this fraud. President Joe Biden has expressed frustration with his staffers for repeatedly stepping in to clarify his statements or gaffes. He felt it was necessary to remind them that he is the president. NBC News reported Biden hates the cleanup campaign, telling his advisors it undermines him and smothers the authenticity that fueled his rise. <laughs> he really said that. So out of touch. The report cites the cleanup from staffers who rushed in to reassure reporters that policy with Russia had not changed after he said in Poland that Russian Vladimir Putin cannot remain in power. Biden was furious that his remarks had been seen as unreliable, the report said. The report added that he speaks genuinely in reminding his uh, staff that he's the one who is president. He has to remind everybody of that because, of course, he is a, right now holds the position but has absolutely no per, or very little personal power because he's not believable. People just don't uh, can't count on what he says. Just my opinion. During his trip to Asia last week, White House aides scrambled to clean up his comments about the United States defending Taiwan, the subject they had to address repeatedly from the White House. During his trip to Poland in March, White House aides were forced to clarify Biden's remarks on three different occasions. Once there were, uh, he suggested U.S. troops would go into Ukraine, then that the U.S. was willing to use chemical weapons and most notably appeared to call for a regime change in Russia. Biden denied his gaffes, saying only his comments were misrepresented by the media while denying his staff control, his every move and his utterance. The report also reveals Biden complains he's not getting credit for his successes on low unemployment. I'm not kidding. This is really his point of view. And Democrats are now not defending him on cable news as his approval ratings are at historic lows. He's now lower than Trump, and he's really twisted about it, a person said close to the White House told uh, NBC News. Biden is also upset his staff did not inform him of the baby formula shortage, which has only added to the notion he's not in control of his own administration. So uh, the other thing that's happening, of course, is that uh, apparently people of color in his administration are not happy. They're not getting mentored and not, not, not moving forward. So many of them are quitting. That's another scandal in uh, the Biden administration. Things are really in chaos in the White House administration. The liberal media may not talk about it very often anymore, but the border crisis is still happening. More than 4,000 people crossed the border illegally on Memorial Day weekend alone. Former Border Control Chief Rodney Scott blasted the Biden administration for not addressing what he described as a growing national security crisis. There's no effort to actually secure the border and to figure out what and who's coming across and what you create a chaotic situation like this. And they've created this through their policies, uh, Scott said. According to U.S. Customs and Border Protection, Border Patrol has encountered 1,219,320 undocumented migrants so far in 2022. That's just this year. And the number appears far from slowing, slowing amid the administration's efforts to end Title 42, a health order that allows the U.S. to turn away undocumented migrants seeking asylum. The Department of Justice announced it will appeal a decision handed down last week by the federal judge that blocked the administration of ending Title 42. However, the uh, DOG has not officially uh, filed the appeal. 
If Republicans win the midterms, Biden should be impeached over this. He has completely been derelict in his duty to protect the American southern border and the American people. He's defying the law. His his role as chief executive is to enforce the law. He's defying the law and breaking them. Well, the Biden uh, Justice Department on Tuesday asked federal appeals court to overturn a federal judge's order that declared the travel mandate unlawful. That's the public uh, travel mandate. A Trump-appointed federal judge last month struck down Biden's airplane mask mandate. Last month, then, a pro- White House press secretary, Jen Psaki, admitted uh, forced masking on planes has nothing to do with science or keeping people from getting infected with COVID. Virtually everyone knows that masks don't work. The Biden regime knows masks don't work. And Psaki admitted it. It's all about power. The um, uh, Justice uh, Department of Justice has an, indicated that they would appeal, not just they think that it's entirely reasonable, but because they think for current and future public health crisis, we want to preserve the authority of the CDC to have it in the future. She said, of course, uh, there's going to be some sort of October surprise. I'm quite certain it's going to involve health and it's going to be somehow trying to affect the uh, red tsunami that's coming in the midterms. Our focus here was seeing what power we had to preserve, Pisaki said. It's not about science. It's about power. Stay tuned. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit the website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Collier County Sheriff Kevin Rambaugh says the number one reason the elderly become victims is isolation. The Collier Senior Center goes a long way in keeping seniors connected with the community and with each other. The Collier Senior Center, located at 4898 Coronado Parkway in Golden Gate, provides comprehensive information regarding services and resources that affect the quality of life of older adults and their caregivers in Collier County, empowering them to maintain independent and meaningful lives. Here's Esther Lully, director of Collier Senior Center. 
everyone. Every senior is welcome. There's diversity there. It's vibrant. It's a caring atmosphere. So there's a reason we offer the services and programs that we do. We want to help enrich the lives of senior members and provide support to their caregivers. Want to find out more? Visit CallYourSeniorCenter.org. That's CallYourSeniorCenter.org. Or call the Collier Senior Center at 239-252-4541. That's 252-4541. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. Choice Social is a new, refreshing social networking platform, and you can find out more and download the app by visiting the website choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Andrew Joppa. Right now we have with us Bob Levy. Bob is an author. He's also a scholar, a constitutional scholar, and chairman of the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute. We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in Washington, D.C., and dedicated to free markets, private property, securing individual rights, and limited government. C-A-T-O dot O-R-G on the web. Thank you, Bob. So last week we started our conversation about immigration. Of course, many people are concerned about the immigration, illegal immigrants, at least uh, cannibalizing opportunity here in the United States. So what about unemployment among immigrants? The unemployment rate is actually lower for foreign-born workers than it is for U.S.-born workers. Uh, Illegal immigrants participate in a labor force at a higher rate than legal immigrants. And legal immigrants uh, participate at a higher rate than the native-born. So over half of the illegals are working on the books, that is to say that they're paying income and payroll taxes. Of course, the other half of illegals are not working on the books. Part of that is because they fear being apprehended and being deported as a result of their illegal entry. But for the most part, they're eager. They come here eager to work, and they do, in fact, work. Yeah, that's what they're looking for. So don't immigrants take jobs from other Americans? Well, that's the the usual critique. Um, But, of course, dollars earned by an immigrant who's working, those dollars— are then spent for food and clothing and shelter for that immigrant or his family. And that, of course, increases domestic demand and domestic employment. So there's no doubt that there are transitory job losses, uh, but some of those losses are offset by job gains elsewhere. And and there's also, of course, a significant benefit to uh, consumers, especially the middle class, when the cost of goods and services is reduced because we have less expensive labor. And by the way, it's not so much that illegal immigrants are needed to fill the jobs that legal residents won't do. There might be some truth to that at a fixed wage, but there's no job that can't be filled at a higher wage. The problem is that commodity prices are set on global markets. Mm -hmm. So if wages rise to entice Americans 
to do unpleasant work that otherwise immigrants would be doing. Prices will rise here correspondingly, and consumers then will simply import more goods uh, from abroad where they can get less expensive goods. And that, of course, means fewer jobs in the U.S. Interesting. So on balance, do immigrants uh, make us better off or worse off? I think it's a pretty good case to be made that they make us a better nation. Uh, We have about 55% of our master's degree and 63% of our PhDs in the engineering field go to foreign-born students. Uh, 25% of recent uh, tech company, new companies, have foreign-born CEOs or head technology guy. Uh, Those companies produce over $50 in sales, and they generate about a half a million uh, jobs. In in Silicon Valley, more than half of startups are uh, immigrant-founded. And in a typical year, about 25% of patent applications come from foreign uh, nationals. Um, One study estimated that each new foreign-born worker in science and technology adds two and a half jobs for U.S. natives. Wow. So there, there's something to the fact, of course, on a short-term basis, that um, immigrants will take jobs from uh, Americans. But I think as the economy adjusts to that, the long-term benefit is positive. You know, Bob, as we're having this conversation, it just occurs to me, you kind of have this template of immigrants. It's kind of a casting them as uh, as a prototype or a, uh, all similar but we're finding out now that some immigrants are coming here in in many cases illegally from 190 uh, nations so uh, is it fair to cast them all in the same light it's not uh, you're absolutely right that uh, first of all there's the threshold distinction between those that come here legally and those that come illegally there's a distinction between those that come here to work and those that come here because <clears throat> they want to commit uh, crimes, and they see, or they want to deal in drugs. Yeah. Uh, the, the threshold between those who are fleeing uh, persecution in Guatemala and Honduras and El Salvador, and those who are coming here because they have a, a rich relative. So there are all kinds of distinctions, and they each have their own set of characteristics, some of which are conducive to a better America, and some of which are problematic, to be sure. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the reasons I continue to harp on the fact that we need to have some sort of a legal immigration process that's merit-based, and we're picking and choosing the people that come in. Of course, we're going to reject people who want to blow us up and people who might be terrorists and, of course, encourage people. And it's not necessarily taking the smartest and brightest, but it's bringing the people here that we need to help contribute to the economy. I agree entirely, and of course our current immigration system does not do that. We basically are admitting immigrants based on uh, family ties, not based on uh, uh, the folks that we need to fill uh, positions here that will advance the economy. So I'd like to move to the uh, next area of immigration, which is uh, Obama's executive orders related to the so-called dreamers. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, setting the stage back to 2007 and 2011, Congress twice rejected the so-called DREAM Act, which would have provided both a sizable increase in funding for border security and a path to citizenship for selected children 
of illegal immigrants. Um, then in, some years later, um, Senator Rubio proposed a light version of the DREAM Act that would have graded, granted legal residency but not citizenship, and Congress then rejected the Rubio version. So meanwhile, President Obama issues an executive order that basically says to heck with Congress, uh, <clears throat> this is DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Essentially, that was Rubio's light version, which Congress had, had said no to. And in 2014, he expanded that executive order to cover not only the children uh, who are arriving, but some adults, um, 5.6 illegal million illegal immigrants uh, could apply uh, for work permits under that order and three years relief from deportation if they were here for five years and they either arrived under age 16 or they were a parent who had a child who was a U.S. citizen or a legal uh, resident. So this uh, order was, even if you believe it was well-intended, it was adopted illegally as an executive order. Yeah, in fact, didn't uh, as I recall, President Obama said, "Hey, I don't have the authority to issue an executive right. order on this. It takes an act of, act of Congress." And did it anyhow? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Bob Levy, again, chairman of the Cato Institute. I encourage you to very visit the very robust website, cato.org, C-A-T-O.org. Bob, I genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you so much, Bob. All right, coming up. We're going to visit with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you suffer with chronic pain and discomfort? After back surgery, I had painful tendons and muscles and difficulty standing upright. On a referral, I visited Dr. Alec at I Am Designed to Heal, Naples Only Vitality and Longevity Practice, where acupuncture, medical massage, energy healing, and integrative holistic medicine are harmonized to create a one-of-a-kind restorative experience. After only two visits, my pain began to dissipate and I could stand and walk more upright. It was amazing. I plan to continue my treatments to enhance my sense of well-being. Don't suffer needlessly with discomfort and pain. Improve your quality of life. See for yourself and make an appointment by visiting the website IamDesignedToHeal.com. That's IamDesignedToHeal.com or you can call or text Dr. Alec at 239-322-3817. That's 322-3817. Visit IamDesignedToHeal.com for an amazing, one-of-a-kind, restorative experience. Do you have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. 
Office is located at 9015 Stratostel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The confident retirement approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. Among other things, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and you can find out more by visiting the website, thefga.org. Coming up, we have with us Andrew Joppa. Andy is a professor. He's also author of a great read. It's called Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Andy. Hey, I understand you saw the new uh, Tom, what's what's his name? <laughs> Tom Cruise movie. Tom, Tom Cruise, yes. <clears throat> First, let, let me just start as a former English major. What is so rare as a day in June? And that was uh, done by the, the greatest American poet, Lowell. But uh, I think in Naples, Florida, almost every day is as rare as a day in June. So that's the joy and the problem of living in Naples, Florida, Bob. Every day is beautiful, but it, you know, it becomes sort of a, a redundancy. But here, here we are, Bob. <laughs> The movie. Um, I think I have a slightly different take on it than I've been reading. It's uh, got great press. The uh, the critics and the, the audience have received it extremely well. Uh, great favorability ratings on Rotten Tomatoes. And um, the only thing I'd like to point out about the movie, it's, it's, it's been cited that it's a very uh, patriotic movie. And in, in its way, it is. But it's an inst- it's against the institutional America. It's pro-American citizen, pro-American individual. Uh, got, uh, obviously typified by Tom Cruise as Maverick in the movie. But he accomplishes the mission while totally being resisted at every step of this process by military leaders. So I think that pretty much typifies America today. Yeah. We have wonderful, great Americans that uh, are the where America can be found, and yet institutional America seems to be the resistance uh, to accomplishing America's mission, Bob. Well, that's so interesting. But one of the, the reviews I've looked at, I'm not even sure I've read a review, is that uh, apparently uh, the movie also thumbs its nose at Chinese power and, uh, the, you know, the usual acknowledgement that uh, Hollywood has towards uh, Hollywood or uh, towards Chinese values. I'm not sure I could see that. Uh, we were using F-18s in this and they continuously cited that we were going to be going up against fifth generation jets, which uh, our F-18s could not compete with. Now, I don't know what country that was. Uh, Most people think it was Iran. Uh, That seems to be the only country that's possible based on the scripting of this movie, um, that you're attacking a a nuclear facility on the verge of completing their development of nuclear weapons. And uh, the way it's laid out, the only country it could be is Iran. So I I don't understand the inclusion of, uh, of China or the statement that it somehow shows our our superiority over Chinese military. But you know, to each their own, Bob. That's I right. love the movie. It's worth seeing. It's a, it's a great extolling of the uh, the virtue of individual Americans and their willingness to take action, break some rules to get the mission done in spite of the institutions of America, Bob. Well, thank you, Andy. I, I'll add to that that Linda and I watched All Quiet on the Western Front on Memorial Day. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, but it's a, it was made in 1930. And I do recommend it. I mean, it's it's old, but it uh, shows the the uh, horrors 
of yeah, especially who's in that? Claude, Claude Rains, or I think. Is I don't even remember the names of the people that. Well, of course, they're all past now at this point. But uh, it certainly shows the horrors of war during the First World War. Just uh, highly recommended as yeah, well. I mean, there's no doubt that there's never been a more useless war than the First World War. I mean, especially the way it was fought in the trenches of France. I mean, just, just, just an incredible uh, destruction of humanity for absolutely no purpose. But. You know, it's been cited by psychologists that this was a point in time where the human species had to be weeded out and that all of these psychological pressures enabled the British and the French and the Germans to send their young men over the top to be slaughtered by machine guns. And it's it's hard to imagine uh, anything causing something of that uh, of that kind of uh, destruction. Yeah, well, thanks for that commentary, Andy. So, um, you know, we, we're now on the heels of a week and a day after Uvalde, uh, the shooting there. I wanted to, uh, of course, uh, everybody's clang or making comments about bearing arms in the Second Amendment, and uh, the president stating the Second Amendment is not absolute. You wrote a great essay about it that I've posted now on my website. Uh, if our listeners will check out, correct me if I'm wrong, you'll find Andy's essay. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I posted in my uh, my essay some statistics that I think are worth considering. There are 130,000 schools in America, which is the, the most uh, well-documented number. Uh, I suggested that if we supplied, uh, this is just not an advocacy, but just a hypothetical, if we supplied each school with $200,000, that would create the hardening of the installations and for the first year uh, support two armed guards in each of these schools, 130000 it would cost us $26 billion. In the second year after the hardening had been accomplished, it would be a $13 billion expenditure each year to maintain armed, gun, armed support in those schools. This is entirely if the federal government is the sole source of this. Now, you know, again, those are big numbers. But when we talk the way that this government throws around numbers, you know, the amount of $40 billion plus of weaponry going into into Ukraine, uh, that doesn't necessarily dismiss the purpose of that, although I, I personally would. Uh, but I think we, we can use this money, uh, use the monies that we uh, apparently have available in great abundance to at least uh, do this to at least create the the psychological ability for students to go to school and and feel safe. And I I see no reason why why this can't be accomplished. I see no reason why it hasn't been accomplished before. If we look at Ovaldi itself, I mean certainly the uh, the questions uh, still are coming in as to why the police didn't act, why it took a. Uh, a border control agent jumping out of his barber's chair, grabbing a shotgun and rushing in to take out this uh, this uh, this uh, insane sociopath. Uh, and the, the rest of the police uh, sat around just debating the issue, apparently. So, I mean, those uh, those issues are are still being debated. I don't think there's any good answer that can ever come out as to why the police did not act. They had uh, ample opportunity to, apparently the shooter stayed outside the building, uh, firing his weapon for 10 to 12 minutes. Uh, that was plenty of time for the response. They were there uh, while the shooting was still in progress and they still refused to take direct action. Uh, I could personally create a, a statement where the police have been uh, somewhat psychologically delimited by the by the attacks on them. They have fear of doing the wrong thing, of, of, of being accused, of being too rash. And uh, so I, I think those the pressures that we put on the police may be part of, of this issue in terms of the failure of the various sections of the uh, police force to, to not respond. 
uh, as an additional question, and I think I mentioned this last week, and it's it's still not being answered uh, as to where this kid got what is now estimated at five thousand dollars worth of uh, guns and and ammunition. Yeah. Where did this kid who worked in the Wendy's drive-in, how did he get that kind of money to buy that kind of weaponry, Bob? Probably by not uh, not by honest means. I will I will say this. I'm for. Uh, having, uh, uh, and I'll take it to its extreme, I realize that this is not plausible in terms of the uh, how people think about this, but I would like to require all teachers go through basic training with guns and sharpshooting, and uh, then all teachers would have a choice, obviously, if they wanted to carry a gun in school, but then also post at each school, this is not a gun-free area. If we, if you enter the building with the intent to hurt someone, if we perceive to hurt someone, you will be shot on sight. Look, I, I tend to agree with that. Although, with the information that we've received over the past couple of years about the quality of the teachers and the lower grade levels, and some of the the videos we've seen of these people, I'm reluctant to put guns. Well, in that, that's you making a very good point. I would also suggest they should go through. <laughs> Some sort of a screening process. Psychological assessment of some sort. Yeah. And maybe even a political assessment, although that would never be allowed. <laughs> right now I'm staring at my uh, my Smith & Wesson 38 airweight, which I keep on my desk. Uh, so, I mean, here I am, or a regular citizen. I'm not a gun person at all. Uh, yet I maintain multiple weapons. Uh, I don't do target shooting and I don't hunt animals. Uh, but I do feel that I have a need, perhaps, uh, to protect my family, to protect your family if the case ever arises. Uh, and I think that is what we, we have in America. Uh, if we look at the, the starting point of the Ukraine war, Ukrainians per se, at that point of the starting point of the war, were not armed. Only 1% of the Ukrainian population had weapons in their home. I would suggest, Bob, that if Ukrainians were armed as well as Americans, that uh, Putin would have had many second thoughts about uh, going directly directly into Ukraine. What is left out of this discussion consistently by, uh, by Biden and the progressive left is the basic reason that was offered uh, at the time of establishing the government's lack of power to interfere with the right to bear arms uh, was our ability to resist a totalitarian government that had, got, that had become lawless. That is never stated. Uh, Biden and all the other progressive left talks about this as as uh, as tin can plunking or or you know hunting squirrels. That isn't what it is about. It is about the ability for this country and its citizens to resist a government if if and when it becomes totalitarian and lawless. Bob, couldn't agree more, Andy. I'd like to take a little break right now. Can you stick around? I have nothing better to do this time of the morning. Bob. All right, Andy. Thank you so much. We're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. You have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. 
Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The confident retirement approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate courtyard garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean dining room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, building a 44,000 square foot performing arts center in downtown Naples. It's going to be absolutely beautiful and also bringing you professional New York style theater at its very best. And you can get tickets now by visiting the website Gulf Shore Playhouse. Org. We continue the conversation with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josefa Savaz. Again, Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Bob. So the president continues to suggest that uh, the Second Amendment, uh, the right to bear arms, is not absolute and that he's not thinking about uh, banning uh, nine milli- millimeter uh, weapons as well as ammunition. What are your thoughts? Well, he says the nine uh, millimeter ammunition will blow out lungs. You know, if we look at the the stopping power of weapons, and that's the key issue is the ability to stop someone who is coming at you in a in an offensive, threatening manner. Uh, we, we need weaponry that that can do that. The nine millimeter is uh, the most commonly used uh, uh, caliber and is uh, perhaps the most effective commonly available weapon in terms of of stopping people. So uh, that is the intent of these weapons. They aren't they aren't pea shooters. They aren't uh, for, for for killing pigeons or squirrels. They are there to stop someone who is on the verge of killing you or your family. So uh, this this nonsense about the, the dramatizing of the fact that the nine, nine millimeter can blow out a lung is, is absurd. If they do so, it is, you know, when we shoot someone or point a gun at someone, our intent is to stop them, Bob. So uh, he doesn't understand the, the nature of the handgun. I, I think if he was to give an any, any series of questions about uh, what an assault weapon is, what an automatic weapon is, what a semi-automatic weapon is, I heard somebody refer to a fully semi-automatic weapon, which is totally an incongruity of terms. Uh, if we look at the, uh, the incessant pressures to, uh, to limit weaponry, <clears throat> they always start someplace by wanting to expand the background checks and so forth and red flag laws. And, you know, there's a certain degree of, of appropriateness to those considerations. But I believe those are just a slippery slope start of where they want to go. I think we can see in uh, Trudeau's recent uh, um, in, in enactment of laws in Canada uh, that he describes as capping 
uh, the availability of handguns. Handguns cannot be bought nor sold nor transferred in Canada at this point. Uh, I think that would be perhaps a, a step that this government would certainly like to proceed to uh, just before, I believe, their destination being, being the banning of weapons. Uh, in terms of our right to bear arms, uh, let me just uh, explain something. I, I was talking to one of the executives of the NRA at, at one point uh, locally here in Naples, and I said the, the Bill of Rights, the Second Amendment, does not give us the right to bear arms. It merely just uh, uh, deepens and amplifies that right that already existed. If we look back at the Constitution, Bob, and the constitutional rat ratifying process, uh, the anti-federalists, the ones that were resisting the Constitution would not sign unless there was a Bill of Rights included. And I certainly understand their logic. And at this point, I, I certainly accept the logic of the need of a Bill of Rights. However, I think we have to listen to what the Federalists said in resisting the Bill of Rights, uh, most typified by Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton basically said that it is not only inappropriate to have a Bill of Rights, it is dangerous. He said it is dangerous for two reasons. Uh, one of them is that uh, it seems to create an absolute list of rights. In other words, if the right isn't there in the Bill of Rights, it is... It, it is attacked that yep. the right does not exist at all. He said that is a dangerous thing. We have the rights independently of the Bill of Rights. The second thing, and I think the one we're seeing now, is that the wording of the Bill of Rights can be used as a way of attacking the right. We've seen that consistently with the Second Amendment and the, the challenge to the phrase uh, well-regulated militia. Yep. Now, that had nothing to do with the actual inability of government to interfere with this action of, of the right to bear arms. It is, as has been said, an inalienable right. And I think most people don't even understand the phrase inalienable right. And an inalienable right is not only one, Bob, that can't be taken away. It is one that can't be surrendered. Right. In other words, we couldn't collectively agree uh, to ban arms. We can't collectively agree to, uh, to ban freedom of speech. This is a right that not only can't be taken away, but can't be surrendered. I think that if we look at America today with the hostility towards individual Americans, a hostility towards the, the Trump supporters, hostility towards uh, white Americans in general, white male Americans particularly, uh, I think we're looking at a situation where uh, that without weapons in the hands of Americans, 400 million of them, I am not going to offer something more dramatic than this, but I think America would be in greater danger than it even is internally uh, if Americans did not possess uh, this this level of weaponry. Bob. You know, Andy, I could not agree more. I definitely agree with that. And I think it's the fear that Americans do have guns that perhaps in some ways uh, corrals uh, this administration from trying to you know, continue to expand the power beyond uh, the limits of government as described by the Constitution, for sure. I, I would just suggest that whatever laws that they, they would like to pass, they just make sure that they understand that these laws will apply to the Secret Service and to the people that surround them that are supposed to protect them. I think that might give them pause to consider this uh, legislation. Well, I, I know you say that somewhat uh, rhetorically, Bob, because we know that they're never going to deprive themselves of their personal security or the, the weaponry and the amount of weaponry that is contained within the, uh, the federal government. I mean, the uh, Homeland Security, the amount of, of guns and ammunition that they have stockpiled. I think the IRS 
Also, it's it's a scary phenomenon, the amount of, of ammunition and weaponry that was purchased for American bureaucracies during the Obama administration. Yeah. Uh, so, look, I'm not predicting anything. I certainly don't want anything to happen. But I think your point you made, and it's one I agree with, is that we would be in, uh, I would put it as imminent jeopardy if America was disarmed at this point. Bob. No question. Hey, I want to talk to you about the Sussman verdict. I think we'd like to take a little break right now. Can you stick around? I'll be here, Bob. All right. We're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me, and he'll help you too. School Choice is a growing movement, one that is already lifting thousands of kids across America and is now supported by three out of four voters. The Optima Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit, was founded to support the establishment and expansion of superior schools of choice. Optima's goal is the successful launch of Hillsdale College, classical academies, and other schools of excellence serving kindergarten through 12th grade. The mission is to train the minds and improve the hearts of young people through content-rich classical education in the liberal arts and sciences with instruction in the principles of moral character and civic virtue. A terrific product of the process, Naples Classical Academy opened this fall in a classical virtual school. Optima Classical Academy will open in 2022. Find out more by visiting OptimaEd.org. Help children in Florida optimize their education opportunities. Visit www.OptimaEd.org. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. We continue our conversation with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. And I want to get your thoughts on the Sussman verdict. Of course, uh, John Durham uh, accused Sussman of lying to the FBI, which is a crime. Uh, they took it to the uh, jury. The jury said that, well, you know, at least one of the jurors, the, I think the head of the jury, said, uh, you know, yeah, sure, he lied, but, uh, you know, it's no big deal. We got bigger things to worry about than lying to the FBI, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that uh, the jury did not find him not guilty of lying to the FBI. I think, as you're pointing out, the jury, a four lady, um, <clears throat> indicated that uh, it was just not a big deal and 
uh, essentially there were there were uh, bigger bigger problems, and I I think our comments indicated that it was almost jury nullification uh, more so than a, a finding of not guilty. Right. I think an interesting subset of this uh, the Sussman situation came out last night uh, through Matt Gates and Jim Jordan where they both documented, absolutely documented, that the FBI maintains a secure office in Perkin Coy, the law firm representing uh, Clinton. Um, amazingly, there's no definition as to why that exists, the FBI maintaining an office, secure office, inside of Perkin Coy, uh, under the directorship of Michael Sussman. So, I mean, that, to me, that, that needs dramatic explanation. Yeah, in terms of this finding, if the jury did find that Sussman did not lie, they're also simultaneously acknowledging that the FBI knew that this was true. In other words, that the, the Clinton administration was the, the Clinton uh, group was the source of these uh, these distortions. Uh, so uh, and Durham at this point has not moved directly against institutional America. He's not moved against the FBI uh, nor the DOJ. I, I think that these are the areas where the uh, the major um, transparency uh, has to be created. I certainly would like uh, Clinton and her and her group to be uh, to be punished in some way right. for the action they took in damaging the, uh, the great president Donald Trump. Uh, on the other hand, unless we can get to the to the actual problem area, and that is the DOJ and the FBI. Uh, and other associated bureaucracies, uh, then we will never, ever uh, clear this up. In terms of the trial itself, I have never seen uh, a, a jury or a judge with a higher degree of conflict of interest right. than this jury did and this judge did. Uh, so any trial that takes place in uh, in, in democratically controlled Washington uh, is going to be a trial leading to this same absurd destination uh, Durham proved beyond any reasonable doubt that, yes, Sussman lied to the FBI, and yet, for whatever their reason, they found him not guilty. I think this will be the pattern that we'll find in all of the uh, the, the indictments that uh, that uh, that Durham brings to trial in the in the D.C. courts, Bob. Yeah, I, I agree with that. On the other hand, I do think that irrespective of the decision made by Sussman, about Sussman, uh, that they now have enough new things to open— that they have opened up, including malfeasance on the part of FBI and especially in the top floors of the FBI, that uh, uh, th there's going to be more indictments. And I think there can be, uh, and to your point, I mean, we should probably, they should probably seek a, a, a different jurisdiction for uh, uh, having the uh, having the case or, or trying the case. But irrespective, I think that this does not necessarily hamper the Durham investigation. I, I tend to agree with you, and this change of venue, I think, is, is a key. I had heard a suggestion a while back that I think is a very good one, that the bureaucracies of the federal government should be distributed around the country. Yep. To have them super concentrated in Washington has obviously created, at this point, uh, a progressive Democrat leftist Marxist stronghold, if I might use all those descriptive words. Right. Uh, I think there was 94 percent of the uh, of the voters in Washington, D.C., voted for for Biden against uh, against President Trump. So uh, this area has been contaminated by those uh, who uh, pay their bills uh, by actions of the federal government. So obviously they they support the spending, they support funding, they support the uh, the, uh, the the power sources uh, because that is where their livelihood comes from. Uh, the way of breaking that up uh, in, in for trials, I think, is a change of venue. But in a larger sense, 
I think if we move the bureaucracies of the federal government around the country, rather than them having a super concentrated in D.C., uh, that might be a way to go, Bob. No, I, I totally agree with that. And you know what? It, that's one of the ways to reduce the size of government, because if you sent out a notice saying the Department of Agriculture is being moved to Wyoming— <laughs> To Casper, I have a feeling a lot of people wouldn't want to make the transfer who are working in the Department of Agriculture. They'd probably just resign. And no, I have no problem with that. <laughs> yeah, it would be a very good thing indeed. Hey, uh, I understand that you've completed a book and read a book about the collapsing of the American family. I wondered if you want to make a comment at all. It's, it's a book that's not getting a lot of play, uh, and I would like it to to get a wider readership. It's extremely well-written, well-documented. Uh, it understands the problem. Uh, the book is called The Collapsing American Family from Bonding to Bondage uh, by Linda Goutsmith. Um, and again, on on Amazon, I, I had seen it recommended on another uh, source, and I, I looked at it, um, read the review, actually one review only coming out in February, one review. Uh, it's an amazing book. I mean, it is so precise and how it documents the the intent of the left the marxist left if, if i might uh, in terms of the 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 importance for them to accomplish their ultimate purpose the, the the need to destroy the american family and i think we can i think we can see that happening certainly uh, already in, in in vast amounts bob uh, no question about it i mean it's and you see it in so many different ways uh everything from the the uh, the welfare state to uh, the you know the the uh, just the the identity politics in in and of itself is another way that just to kind of destroy the family, and uh, Wait, yeah, go ahead, uh, Andy. I, I was just going to say that you can see that with Biden's comment where he's discussed children as not being your children; they're our children in the sense of when they're in the schools, they're no longer uh, the 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 the, uh, the children of parents. They are now essentially. He didn't say these words. I'll say them. They are now children owned by the government during that that period of time. I think the alienation of children from their from their families, uh, the ability in many cases, the inability rather of uh, of children and fathers and mothers to even talk because the children have been so brainwashed into believing that people, for example, who don't agree with global warming or any of the uh, essential hoaxes, as I would have it, of the left uh, are somehow evil people. This is causing a dramatic breakdown between parents and children in the home because of the way they're being uh, brainwashed, not only into accepting the ideology, but into believing that people that hold opposing ideologies are evil, and that includes their parents, Bob. I'm so glad you brought this topic up, and we're just going to, again, acknowledge our governor and the state legislature for the job they've done in creating a parental bill of rights and uh, how we're handling education and public schools here in Florida. Just so grateful for the leadership of DeSantis. Again, the name of the book is The Collapsing American Family from Bonding to Bondage, highly recommended by Professor Andrew Joppa. I, I really, I really do advocate it. I, I advocate books on occasion on your show, but uh, this one, I, I, I think it, it needs reading. And by the way, uh, I saw that uh, DeSantis was on Laura Ingram at a somewhat town hall meeting, and the reception he got when he started to talk about parental rights was just amazing. Uh, there was a sustained level of applause and cheering. Must have gone on for two or three minutes, Bob. Again, Andy, just really appreciate your commentary here in the show. Thank you so much for joining us. See you soon, Bob. All right, thank you. Well, that's a wrap here at today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly had fun. Uh, tomorrow, we've got great guests, including Keith Law, co-founder of the Florida Citizens Alliance, who will visit with uh, 
Dr. Uh, George Markovich, visit with uh, Seton Motley, the founder and president of Less Government, and our former mayor of Naples, Bill Barnett, will be joining us as well. Always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com, bobharden at hotmail.com. Also, if you enjoy the show, I hope you'll tell your friends Again, help our advertisers, and uh, of course, that sustains the show, so we appreciate your support so much. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.